I've never been the best writer. I've never been an Exkelton. I've never been a McLean. I've never been a Kent. Never. But I never lowered my standards with horsemanship. And that's my secret. Welcome to Practical Horseman's new podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which will run every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform and inspire. I'm Sandy Olenek, and this week's debut conversation is with George Morris. A world-renowned hunter and jumper coach, George is considered to be one of the most influential trainers in the history of equestrian sports. He earned early fame in the hunter-jumper world by winning the ASPCA McClay National Championship and the American Horse Shows Association Hunt Seat Medal Final in 1952 when he was just 14 years old. He then went on to ride for the U.S. equestrian team, winning prestigious events such as the Grand Prix of Aachen and helping to bring home the show-jumping silver medal at the Rome Olympics in 1960. His former students include many of today's successful riders, such as Leslie Burr Howard, Katie Monaghan Perdant, Conrad Holmfeld, Melanie Smith-Taylor, and Chris Kapler. He served as a chef to keep for many winning U.S. teams, is a much sought-after clinician and judge, and has authored many books about his teaching philosophy. I've been working with George on various editorial projects for about 24 years, including most recently his photo critique column, Jumping Clinic, in Practical Horseman magazine. For this conversation, George and I spoke at his home in Wellington, Florida. We sat in a room filled with books, largely about riding, and also filled with photographs of George with a who's who in the riding world of his mentors, contemporaries, students, and horses. Similarly, Our talk is a journey through his life and the insights he has learned. We touch on several topics from his early years as a timid rider, to his love of dressage, to the American forward riding system. He discusses the challenges he sees in today's sport horse industry. He shares an exercise he thinks riders need to work on more. And he also speaks fondly about his favorite horses. Near the end of our talk, George reveals how he doubts himself all the time in nearly every facet of his life which I found surprising. Throughout our discussion, you'll hear two themes emerge, his love for the horse and the reason for his success, which he feels is because he never lowered his very high standards. Now, let's jump right into this conversation with George Morris. Hi, George. Thank you so much for doing this podcast with us. Why do you think you've been so successful? Very fun to be with you and just do this together with you. Uh, from the time I was two, I would look out the car window in Connecticut, horse, 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 horse. I was just always horse crazy. Uh, but I, I'm partic- I always was particularly horse riding, training crazy. I'm not uh, other, other types of horse interests and whatnot. They don't interest me as much as just horse training, correct horse training, and correct riding. Uh, 
I would, I would say that's the basis of my success because I have 24-7 been, been in the office reading, uh, judging, teaching, writing. You know, I'm, I'm really, really into that. I was not a talent. I was a very timid starter, a very stiff starter. In fact, one of my earlier great teachers, Gordon Wright, first suggested swimming, and then he suggested tennis to my mother. But I was a worker. I was always a, I was diligent. I was, I would outwork the other people, and I was not stupid. But I was not talented. So uh, I, I use that as an example for. I, I was not a Rodney Jenkins. I was not a Katie Monahan Proudhon. I was not that type. But uh, the work ethic, I think that I was fairly bright. Reading has supplemented me enormously. Reading my whole life, reading how to ride, how to train a horse. Reading has really supplemented me enormously. And, and as I went through life, I had very, very early success due to a wonderful junior horse and a wonderful teacher, Gordon Wright. I had and wonderful judges that I could do no wrong, by the way. Uh, I, I, I had a very, very early, very high profile name uh, winning the finals when I was 14, actually 13 horseshoe age. From a very early age, uh, I, I, I got very involved uh, with the team, then very, very early on judging, very early on being an author. So uh, all of those things, all of those things cultivated my brand. Not that I've ever been interested or even thought of my brand. I, I, well, I am aware of my brand, how I dress, how I ride, how I teach, but I'm not in it for my brand. I'm in it because I'm a nut about riding and training horses. But I think all of those activities, Europe, all of the activities, traveling, giving clinics, and other, I think all of those activities put me in a position of success. And you spoke about Gordon Wright, and um, I've read that he was, he was very influential on you, of course, um, but that when you came to him at about age 12, you were, um, as you said, a little timid. You'd been overpaced, perhaps. Um, I guess, how did he help you work through that? And uh, what other impact has he had on your, your life and your teaching? Well, I had been overfaced. I was still, I still had great desire to ride, but I was, I was naturally timid, and I was overfaced, innocently overfaced. But I was overfaced, so I really lost my nerve. And the only, the only solution was a friend of mine said to my mother, "Take him down, Gordon Light." And Gordon kept me at a standstill the first lesson. We didn't walk. And he positioned my legs and he positioned my hands. He showed me two-point contact and three-point contact and look up at a point. And he started, really, if we walked, it was fast, because I don't even think we walked. 
and I don't think this horse probably had a pottery trot, and I think in some lessons later he did stagger over a cross trail of six inches. Uh, but that's how he started me, and he kept me very slow, but that was Gordon's system. Gordon kept people slow. Cross trails, cross trails, low jumps, lots of basic, simple flat work. Uh, he, he held people back and took them to the horseshoe and had great success. And so I know uh, the first six months he took me very slow and, and uh, then, then when he was ready and when he felt I had the basics and of course then my confidence was getting, I wanted to do something. So I was, he, he got me rehabbing a bit, so to speak, to want to go higher and do more, but he held me back. In the first year, the first year, uh, the first year or two, he didn't let me compete in the medal class at the horse shows. I could, I won them, I qualified for the McLean in 1950, I was 12, 1951. I don't think he let me go in the medal. In those days, the medal had a fence on the end at the garden. It was very technical versus the McLean. So uh, he still held me back. And then, of course, when I did well in, in the equitation, then, then very soon, a year or so later, he put me on the jumpers. Um, and as you mentioned, you won the medal, uh, the AHSA uh, Hunt Seat Medal Final, and the ASPCA McLean National Championships at the Garden, Madison Square Garden, when you were 14, uh, show age of 13. What do you remember most of the, about that time? Or, I mean, what was that like to, to be competing at that time? You know, we, I guess every generation says the good old days. Now, there are things today much better than in those days. But in those days, it, it was a glamour era. It was a leisurely era. It was what was called luncheon recess every, at every horse show. There was a break of an hour, an hour and a half, and people had have outside course or ringside parking and picnics. And then always the show always ended at 5, 5.30, and there always were cocktail parties. And then at the nicer shows, always dinner parties. And Europe also often was, it was leisurely. The shows were often longer. The garden was an eight-day show then, and more leisure, and there was time there was time to see every class, and everybody knew who won every class. It was elegant, it was classy, it, it, it didn't have the tech, you, you, you would not see the technical excellence of Saturday night at Wellington. You wouldn't see the technical excellence of the medal finals at Harrisburg. But it was good, basic horsemen. The, the, the horsemen, real horsemen were real horsemen. They did everything themselves. And I think I was one of the first ones from Gordon, one of the early ones, Victor Vidal, myself. There were some early ones we specialized. That was very new in the 60s, that you had, you had secretaries, you had barn managers, you had hierarchy of grooms, blacksmith vets, because the profession before they acted as vets. They, they didn't get vets, they didn't get, they acted as their own blacksmiths. 
So the age of specialization brought great focus on the specialties of all these points I've just mentioned, but at the same time we lost a great deal in the overview. So it was it was a very, very different time. It, business it, business was to survive. A lot of these professions were poor and they had to sell a horse, they had to get a lowly commission, they had to get ride. It, it, it was on the being a professional was on the backpack burner in those days. It was a sport. But it was it was an amateur sport and now it is a professional sport. That's a difference. And they're they're greats of both. They're greats of both. Mm -hmm. I am so lucky because I've seen the sport at the top of the sport from the 1940s. And as you, you moved out of the equitation and into riding jumpers, um, can you talk a little bit about that time? I mean, from, say, 1956 to 1960 when you uh, went to the Olympics. Well, after I won the finals so young, my father went down several weeks ago down to Secor Farms, Gordon's place in White Plains, and said, Gordon said, because I was out of the, I was out of, it was an unwritten rule. If you won the finals, both finals especially, you should not compete in junior classes again. I was 14. So what was I to do? Well, Gordon had a great idea, Joe Venorio, the premier saddle seat trainer live right down the road, right down the road, a half mile. So Gordon had a, had a great idea that I should go to Joe, try to win both saddle seat finals. My father, Gordon hardly got that out of his mouth and my father's face turned beet red and he said, no way. He said jumpers. So of course I didn't go into saddle seat equitation. I kind of wish I had done that. I wish I had gone to Joe Benorio and had a top horse and because I love that division. I love the equitation division. Hmm. And I, I would have loved to have tried that. So uh, quite soon, the next year, I did ride for half a year to try to retire some challenge trophies in the, in the junior division. But then quickly, I got this young jumper, which I first named Holy Smoke, and then shortly thereafter was way too unsophisticated and adolescent Holy Smoke, so I changed his name to the Gigolo. So uh, anyway, uh, I got this very informato euchre from the Genesee Valley, Roger Young. I got this nice, very nice, he was like a three-quarter bread. And, uh, so the first year he showed, that or showed us what we call green jumper. That was up to three, nine, four feet. It was like low preliminary jumper. And then you went right to the next year, 1955. I showed him as a big jumper. And I also showed Gordon's best horse, a horse called Royal Guard, who also had two names. He was also called Saxon Wood. Bill Steinkraus rode him on the team. He had two names also. So I, I had those two very high profile, when I was 17, jumpers, big jumpers, they call them big jumpers then. And uh, toward the end of that year, 
had nice success and was champion the Westchester show before the indoor circuit, won a class at the garden. And those, those kind of things, those kind of successes catapulted you in a national attention, like winning the finals or winning a class at the garden. You know, because people had time to watch. They watched everything. There's no time now to watch. There's too much. So uh, that, that's when uh, that, that's when Bird and Billy and I think they kind of picked up on me. <clears throat> and then after I had a short year at the University of Virginia, which I loved because I loved to ride in Virginia and I loved to party in Virginia. And my grades, of course, catapulted down for the first time ever. And uh, I just went there one year because it was apparent that the next, the, uh, the summer after I was at UVA, Bert asked me to travel nationally with our team, not on the team, but go to Oxridge, go to Fairfield, go to Skinia with Billy, with Hugh Wiley, with Frank Chapeau, with Bert as part of the team. It was an off year. It was a year after the 56 Olympics. So they traveled to national shows to support here. So I was not part of the team, but I went with the team. Uh, then because it was apparent that I was close to getting on the team, those days like today, it's a very big deal. Then it was much easier because there are fewer people to try for the team, very few people. Uh, that I transferred to Columbia. But that lasted a very short time because then we had Harrisburg. We didn't have Washington by 57, that started in 58. So we had Harrisburg, New York, and Toronto, and I had a very good horse, uh, horse by then called Warbride, a different, very nice horse. So Columbia went by the wayside. I lasted there a month, and then I went off for six weeks. And then I, then Bert said, come to Tryon. We're back in Tryon. That's come full circle, because our first trials in 56 were in Tryon for the Stockholm Games. And we trained in Tryon in 58. So Tryon, we all, you know, us old timers knew Tryon wheel. Now it's back in vogue. So he invited me to come to Tryon after Christmas. So uh, that was the end of college. That was the end of college. Uh, and I went to Tryon. And then I did, then that was the first time I actually trained with, uh, with Bert and Billy and you and Frank. And at one point, at one point, February or early March, I don't know when it was, there are five people in contention of the European tour. And they and Bert took four. Well, out of the blue, Charlie Dennehy, who was a very good friend of mine, especially his brother Wilson Dennehy, my age, telephoned Bert and said, Bert, I can't go to Europe because I'm marrying Daphne Bedford. So Bert walked up to me that morning and said, George, you're going to Europe because Charlie's getting married. He can't go to, that's how I got on a team. <laughs> that's how I got on a team. So it was way easier. So uh, then, then, then I had, uh, I had that 50, 59, 60. I had a great, I had a great run with them. I had a great run 
riding was on wonderful horses. I had Billy's hand-me-down night owl that he had ridden. He sold to John Galvin. He was a schoolmaster, but he was a winning schoolmaster. And he had a, he had a, I think when I rode him, he had a fresh look on life because Billy was so precise and accurate and held them together. And he had a, he was a bon wheat. He had immense scope. He was a big thoroughbred, 17 ants. He had big, big scope. He had a hand canter, seven foot six. So I think when I inherited him and missed distances and released him and didn't know what I was doing, I think his eyes started to get bigger <laughs> and he started to go. He was a hand-me-down horse, but he was my top horse along with Sinjon, who was coming up. Sinjon was then six. And really, a, he was a new th second, third type of horse. Uh, so I had wonderful horses. Because Night Owl was a classic Aachen horse, classic Rotterdam, huge scope, not the most careful, puissance horse, Grand Prix horse, Nations Cup, anywhere. Sinjon, developed into a more careful, faster, 15, three and a half, weedy, thoroughbred, who was more suitable, for example, Rome, where the poles were lighter, indoors, the garden, Harrisburg, those shows. So they were two totally different horses. And I had always a nice third horse, uh, speed horse, but they were two totally different horses. So I, my bases were covered mm. anywhere, anywhere in the world. In fact, the night, before the 60 in the, uh, games in, in Rome, the individual class, we could not decide which horse to ride. And Bert, in his wisdom, said Sinjon because Rome had the lighter poles, hmm. much lighter poles and more technical and more delicate and ate some more like today. Hmm. And uh, Night Owl lectured won the Grand Prix of Aachen. He was an Aachen horse. That was the right choice, but very few people ever, even today, ever, would have two such powerful Olympic type horses and so different, mm -hmm. so different. Uh, I mean, nowadays some people have that, but it's not normal. So from every aspect, it was a great run. Mm -hmm. Then I needed a change. And uh, you went into acting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like just why you needed a change and what spurred that on? Well, as I said, I've been horsey, horsey, horsey since a very young age. And I would say that's the only time in my life that I, I, mean, I can't say burned out, but I was restless. First of all, I was restless my personal life, my identity. Yes, I lived in New York City, but I lived in the country. I lived in a very conservative uh, Connecticut atmosphere. <clears throat> and I, I really wanted, I, I, wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to get out on my own and do just something different. At that time at Oxridge, there was a little, not noticeable, gray-haired lady trotting around the polo field on the weekends 
on a three-gated saddle horse, not a show horse, just a three-gated. And nobody paid much attention to her because she didn't have beautiful 16-1 thoroughbred hunters that were daisy cutters. But I somehow befriended her. Her name was Edith Van Cleve, Miss Edie, she was called in the theater circles. She'd been an actress. <clears throat> At this time, she was top dog, Music Corporation of America, the biggest agency in the world. She had three clients in the theater, Montgomery Clift, Race Kelly, and Marlon Brando. And she was my friend. And I was itchy to get out of New Canaan. The, the team moved down to Gladstone, which meant it was the first time, 61 was the first time they were in Gladstone that time. And I would have had to somehow work in the city and like Billy and commute to Gladstone. That didn't appeal to me. You could not even smell professional. I, Bert had a fit when I taught my own sister's children on ponies. It, he almost forbade that. You couldn't even smell professional and be on the team. So I was going to do something I didn't want to do, then commute to Gladstone or turn professional, which at that time wasn't really in the cards for me. I had an itch to live in New York City, you know, spread my wings on a personal level, see what I was about. And the theater, this theater idea caught on. So Edie, of course, could pull any string in the theater world, in Hollywood or New York. So she called Rita Morgenthau at the Neighborhood Playhouse, a top, top school of the theater in New York City. And she got me in without an audition several months late because I rode with a team through Toronto. So I just waltzed in with no audition after Thanksgiving you know, nobody else could do that. And uh, there I was in the neighborhood playhouse, and they said, oh, you got to quickly, you've got to get into your leotard because the first class is with Martha Graham on the floor and contractions. <laughs> so this, you know, this was a real cultural shock. But uh, to make a long story short, I had a great two years there. I had an apartment in the city, which, by the way, was sublet from Joan Crawford's daughter, Mommy Dearest. Mm -hmm. And in the, the only thing Christine Crawford left in this, it was a little apartment, in this closet I had were these cardboard boxes. And they were full of letters from the mother. That was the basis of the book, Mommy Dearest. I read wow. a few of them, because <laughs> that's all she left there. Wow. Uh, so that's just an aside story. Uh, but again, through MCA and E, there was every possible contact. And uh, she got me into summer stock for two summers, and I, I made again a great different set of friends. And it was the first time and only time in my life that I've stood on my own two feet without horses. And it was difficult. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I could not speak in public before that. I was so nervous. I'm still nervous. When I have to teach or doing this interview or give clinics or talk lessons, I'm still nervous, but I do it because I was taught to do it. Uh, so again, my whole perspective on New York and my whole social life, my identity, 
altered shape, the ability to talk on my feet. Without those two years, Sandy, of the Hebrew Playhouse, I certainly would not have been a teacher. I certainly would not have been the teacher that I turned out to be. That was one of the greatest, not only their coincidences life, but that was one of the, that departure was a great departure for two years. Yes, I still went out to the club. I still then taught my nieces and nephews. I started judging. That's when I started judging Long Island one day shows. So I still, I still kept my finger in the horse business. And after two years, <clears throat> after I'd graduated from the neighborhood playhouse and come back from my second summer stock, I was at a party. And this guy, and I had been offered a five-year contract with Warner Brothers. And I met a guy at, the, at a party, and he was 29. I was in 24, I think. And he had just been through this five-year contract. And the five-year contract didn't let you do anything else. You could not work out there for the... And he came back at 29 and was starting from scratch as if he was 23 or 4. And I said, you know, I'm not brilliant. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a working actor at best. I'm not going to be a star. I'm not going to be, I just do it. I said, I go out there to California, pick up on this contract, do little or nothing for five years. I come back here, the theater's not going to happen. The horse business then is defunct, it's over. So at just again a coincidence, Jessica Newberry, now Ransell's and mother, they're very old friends of mine, Jessica and her mother, her mother Ruth, she said, George, we just built a place in Osable Forks, New York, in Lake Placid. We invite you to come up. We're getting this fabulous Danish icon, Gunnar Anderson Craner for Jessica. You come up, bring some jumpers, come up there, study with Gunnar, bring the jumpers. So I had, that was again, that was the best year I ever had in the horse business, bar none. Because I was up there in isolation, six hours from New York City, isolation with Jessica, with her family. Gunnar Anderson was the icon of Europe, the best of the best of the, no, no better. Rode all the dressage horses, they let me show them. We had hunters, we had jumpers, I got Jessica riding on it. I had a couple of pupils up there that I started teaching and taking the shows. So that, that, was, that was really the transition year. Uh, then I realized at the end of that year, as wonderful as it was, it was time for me to make a living. I was then 25. And <clears throat> my family had paid, my grandmother and my family had paid for it all the way through. And it wasn't expensive like today, but it was relatively speaking expensive. And I had to fish or cut bait. I had to, I had to start making money, not spending money. Now, having said that, my father and my mother, they always, you know, they always own half a horse or helped me with a young horse. They always helped me for four or five years after. But I had to, I had to, I had to become a professional. And then there was a toying period. Bert said, you know, if you come back to the team. 
you can't have the you can't have the same horse as you left with. Of course, they were older. Uh, you, you, you know, you, you can't start out where you left off with a pick of the crop. Uh, so uh, then, then I then the, the only regret I ever have was that I love dressage, and I think I could have been very useful to the USCT in dressage if I'd stayed an amateur and ridden dressage because I had, I have a I still. All my books on my bed are now dressage books. Hmm. I'm a dressage junkie. That's the only regret. As I go to my grave, there will always be a regret that I didn't have a career as a dressage writer. But you can't have both. Hmm. So, uh, what made you pick jumpers? From a business point of view, oh, I love the jumpers, I love the hunters, I love the equitation. So, of course, I chose that as a business direction and uh, that's when I that's when I rented an old friend of mine Dave Kelly sublet his stable in Armont New York and that was my first I left the Newberries and the first of 64 it was right because I, it was one of the few times I never had a groom I had three horses and I had a great time I did all of it myself I would call Bob Frios three times a day right across the valley and say, Bob, what do I do now? He said, George, water. George, the green is the hay, the yellow is the straw. George, it's time for a bran mash. Now get the horses out in the mornings. You can spend the afternoon grooming them and doing other chores. George, did you get them turned out yet? So Bob Creels, who had been on the team, managed the team, so he held my hand that first year at Armand. So that was my first year as a professional. Um, speaking a little bit about the dressage, um, why did you feel and still feel it's so important? For a very long time, hundreds, thousands of years, horsemen that lived with horses, morning the horses lived in their house, they used horses for transportation, war, not necessarily sport. They knew horses. And when they started with sport, all the classical schools of the world, including Fort Riley, understood slow work. They called it slow work dressage, was the basis of conditioning a horse like going to the gym. You want to go to the gym correctly or incorrectly, it's the same thing. So physically, it conditioned the horse correctly. Mentally, it relaxed the horse. Emotionally, it made him feel better. So luckily, because of Otto Ukerod, Gordon Wright, Burton Timothy, Gunnar Anderson, Jessica Victor, people like that, I was brought up thinking like that. But Sandy, I'm more convinced than ever when I see how people work horses today, strapping their heads down, force, 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 vets, 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 injections, injections, injections. Horses are more indispensable today for people. They aren't worked well. They aren't worked well. No, not all. Not all. Some 
and Krasinski, Beezy, Madden. There are some, some that work them beautifully, but the majority of people do not work them correctly. They don't gymnasticize the horse. And that's ancient. That's not some secret. That's not something that I profess to have discovered or invented. It's the way I was brought up. But I am more and more and more convinced that the correct riding, the longevity of the horse, the happy, they talk about horse welfare. They talk about horse welfare. There's not much horse welfare when you see how people work horses. There's not much horse welfare. And I'm very outspoken about that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I say, uh, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, as I say, my background gave me the mentality to understand it. But in my heart, I really understand it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think people are doing wrong today? Force. Force. I'm very anti-growing. I know that's politically not correct, and all the heavy hitters use draw reins. But as living with draw rein, even if you work like the greats, Alvin Shakamala, Alvin Shakamala put their heads between their legs, but Alvin Shakamala worked the horse from behind. Most people, even top people, don't work a horse in his own legs. Hmm. So what does the forehand, what, what does the draw rein do? It literally ties the horse on his shoulders. It ties the horse on his forehand. And in the best of times, people don't work the horse on iron leg. And that's where you want to transfer the weight day after day after day after day. So horse is carrying himself in balance, not wearing out his front end. Plus it, it uh, having ridden lots of horses, upgrade draw reins, they're very dead in the mouth. They're very lo- loaded in the shoulder. They're light in the croup. Uh, I'm I'm really not one to talk to about draw reins because I know Bert used them. Lots of great riders use them, but I have very strong opinions about not choosing or short martingales. Anything that pulls the horse down. Anything that pulls the horse down. The curvature of the horse, the longitudinal, what's called round, that starts with the hind leg, the hind foot of the horse coming under the horse. That in turn, when the hind leg engages, the croup drops. It is a physical necessity for the back and the wither to raise. If the croup drops, the rest has to raise up and the base of the neck raises up and the neck arches. But that starts from behind. It always is from behind. It is always leg dand. And the great riders know that, especially in visage, and they preach that. But lots of people are too busy there. They, they, they jump, 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 horseshoe, horseshoe, horseshoe. They don't pay enough attention to that part of it. That's why they have the vets so much. Mm. Frankie Slotog, the great world champion, was recently, it was four, five or six years ago at the Rome Horseshoe. He said, George, 
I hate this word flat work that you use in America. He said the correct word is visage. He, this is Frankie Slotog, who everybody rivers, right? Mm -hmm. Frankie, I didn't say it, Frankie said it. He said, you know, George, from no, from no other point except from the soundness, you've got to do dressage. No other point. Forget rideability, forget winning at the horse show, forget the mental, from no other angle than the soundness. And he's right. And um, we've spoken before about the, uh, you know, moving on to the jumping aspect, the American forward uh, riding system. Um, can you just talk about that and why that's so important, I guess, to riders and to yourself? Yet again, we we're always taught this from Caprilli to the French to the Germans to the Americans, we preserved it maybe the best, is for slow work, longer stirrups, without stirrups, slow work dressage to school the horse, a deep seat. Once you go faster, it is necessary to shorten your stirrups, lean forward, lighten the seat, or even get off back, which we call two-point contact. The French call it en suspension, in suspension. That is necessary because the concussion, once you go faster than a canter, the gesture of the horse is bigger, the concussion heavier, the fatigue of the horse more of a problem. So with this forward seat, which, by the way, if you watch the wig, most people have yet again adopted. I was very happy to see that because there was a time, you know, people always waver with a backward seat or a forward seat with their horse or behind the horse. I was very happy at the wig to see so many forward because the sport has caught up to the system. The sport, first of all, the fences are so delicate and technical, you have to have a sensitive blood horse. You didn't see clunkers at the, on the podium at WIG. Mm -hmm. The days of heavy, big-footed, heavy, slow, they're over. Second, after the fences are so delicate and technical, the speed. Even the first round of a lowly meter 30 class is very fast against the clock. So what accommodates fast is a forward seat. Why do jockeys shorten their stirrups, lean forward and get off the horse's back? Because it makes it easier for the horse. So luckily, yet again, I was brought up jumping with a forward seat. And I won't change because because I still see how successful it is with Beasy, McLean, Ward has gotten much lighter over the years for these finer horses he has today, Laura Kraut, you know, our top riders in this country, Europeans, the Whitakers, uh, Gerko Schroeder, lots of the Germans. They have short stirrups, they gallop their horses, well, Europeans, they gallop their horses, they lean forward much of the time, they're out of the saddle much of the time. 
So the sport has caught up to the system, even they, even if some people won't admit it. Interesting. Easier for the horse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Heels down, easier for the horse. Eyes up, easier for the horse. Body forward, easier for the horse. Release the horse's mouth, easier for the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your teaching and, and your years as chef, but before that, just backing up to something you had talked about that um, surprised me when I read your book, um, about the, that you have nerves, that that, um, it, that was a, a challenge for you, and, and you've, as you indicate you've had to work for, you know, work over. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because I think certainly a lot of people do have nerves, both in the ring and just in life in general. And can you just talk about that challenge and how you worked through it? There are two types of fear. Physical fear, the fear of getting hurt. And I always had that. I always was timid, cautious. Unless I'm very, very sure of a situation, I'm very cautious. Mental fear is the fear of making a mistake. Now, physical fear and teaching have to go very slowly with people with physical fear. You can't rush for them. Lots of the greats, you can guess which ones, have mental fear. Lots of the greats have lots of mental fear. That's why they're great. Now, once they go in, some people are lucky. I had enormous mental fear, more even than physical fear, fear of making a mistake. But I was lucky once I went in the ring, still today, if I had to go in, suddenly my mental fear dissipates. It's called stage fright. And I get over stage fright once I trot in. Now, some people don't. And those people never achieve success in competition. But lots of the greed have, have mental fear. So I've always battled that. I suffered. I, I, not, not so much as I ruined the team with physical fear, although when I first went to Europe and saw the fences versus our fences, initially I had physical fear. I always had some, but I had terrible, I always, to the day, well, I still teach in clinics. I had mental fear doing this interview. I, you know, I always have, uh, so I've lived with it. Mm-hmm. I've lived with it. I've learned. I never went to a sports psychologist. I mean, I've, so I always battle that, live with this mental fear. But once I'm on stage, I survive. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's normal, normal. So, George, you've uh, talked a little bit about. Um, Teaching, you're obviously a, a phenomenal teacher, and uh, you taught a lot of a generation of riders who are now trainers who, who did very well in the metal McClay classes. Can you talk a little bit about some of your more famous students and what it was like to work with them? Well, yet again, I hand to Gordon Wright. He was a teacher's teacher. I give him all the credit. Uh, because he taught Victor, he taught Ronnie, he taught Billy early on. He taught me, he, he inspired people, not just to be writers, but to be teachers. And all his people, lots of, at least, I would say 50% of his people became teachers. And their, their students became teachers. So I have to give him credit. 
When I started teaching in the mid-50s, I started Oxbridge with my nephews and nieces, the Neville children, Conrad Humphill, Katie, Monaghan, Melanie, Melanie Smith-Taylor, Leslie Burr, Howard, on and on and on, uh, Chris Kepler, Norman Delajoyo. I've had, you know, so I've been very lucky. And they're all different. The system is to, as close as possible, give them a classical foundation. But don't ever forbid their style. That is a recipe, that's a trick, that is a secret. You perfect their classical position, their classical way, but let them develop their own style. Because people don't ever change their style. My style, my style of riding and jumping horse today is like pictures I have at 11, jumping at the Wilton, Connecticut horse show. Hmm. You don't, you, you classify their style. You make correct as close as possible to classical riding their style, but you don't ever try to destroy their style. And that, I always had an instinct for that. Some teachers don't care about any style. Some teachers want to mold them rigidly and everybody has the same style. No, you let them develop their own personality, their, their own style, their own association with training a horse. How do you do that? Like when you say classical style, like give them that, make sure they have that. Maybe talk about that a Would little bit. Would you consider the stat classical stirrup position? What you now, I, for example, consider the French leg with the toes out a little bit, the heel down and in. The ca I was taught that first, and I've stuck to that. I don't care for the German leg. I don't care for the very tight knee and thigh, the parallel toe, the calf off the horse. But if you go back to classical German books, they don't teach that. You have to be very careful of fashion, very careful what is politically correct, because often it is wrong. If I see something politic with horses or with life, if I see groupthink politically correct, boy, I wrinkle my nose and take a second look and probably run the other way. Mm. Yep. So, uh, as I say, because I was brought up initially with Gordon, with uh, the French pace, uh, very much with the motion of the horse, not behind it, not the old Italian ahead of it, uh, straight line over to the mouth. That's what I call classical style. And classical horse training is straight, is, is forward, is contact, is rhythm. That's right. You, you stick to what masters have taught us for centuries or millennia. You don't stray from that. And I'm not bendable. Mm -hmm. And I never have strayed from that. And the greatest secret to my success is I don't lower my standards. That's my mm -hmm. secret. If I have no other secret in this sport, is I, you can ask any student,
I've ever had ever or a riding comrade. I've never been the best rider. I've never been an Excalibur. I've never been a McLean. I've never been a Kent. Never. But I never lowered my standards with horsemanship. And that's my secret. And where does that come from? That comes from my heritage. That comes from my Quaker, Congregationalist, New England. It's my parents, my family. Mm -hmm. I was taught, I had a very influential grandmother. She was an early woman suffragette. She was a work, she believed in work ethic. She didn't believe in anything ostentatious. She believed in school. She believed in study. She believed whatever you, whatever you endeavored to do, you did it to the best of your ability. Thorough, she used the German word, she was German Dutch, Grundlich, which is base, basics. Grundlich, groundwork. Basic, basic, ba- perfect the groundwork. So I had it from them. I had it from Otto Eucroth at Ox Ridge, Miss Townsend at Ox Ridge. I had it from Gordon Wright. I had it from Bert Denemothy, who ran a well-oiled machine, Bill Steinkraus. I had it, Jack LeGoff. I had it from all the people I touched in those formative years. And, and, but it was my nature. Um, and speaking a little bit about um, uh, not taking away a rider's style, can you maybe talking about, um, say, you know, Leslie and Katie, you know, they seem to have different styles. Totally. So maybe talk mm-hmm. about that, just how you were able to let them have their style, which obviously was successful. You know, Sandy, it's very hard to teach video to tell you in words. I perfect, I insist their stirrup is correct, their leg is correct, but I see their idiosyncrasies. I don't pound Leslie for her soft back, because if I pound her for a soft back, I'm gonna ruin her. But I talk about her back. Katie always stood up in the air a little bit. I didn't bother her with that. I talked about it. Maybe we had some exercises, but I didn't pound her on that. But it's a very fine line. You can't, it's very hard to teach feel. I see the feel. I can't teach that part. I can't teach that to anybody. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you the secret is, one of the secrets is, stick to classic classic riding, classic position, classic flat work, classic jumping, but be careful you don't try to break the style. And don't have a your standards. My biggest disappointment in the horse business is so many of people, my people included, with their standards. Mm. And they know that I feel that way and they're sensitive and defensive about it. But I'm brave enough to say it. And that's the future. With this technical culture we have, less attention to patience, less attention to 
boring endeavors like grooming, like raising a horse, like reading a book. We just talked about it. Mm -hmm. Less and less attention to to lazy, boring endeavors. I don't call them boring, mm -hmm. but they're boring endeavors. There'll be less and less attention with the quickness of technology. People won't have time for that. That is lowering the standards. Mm -hmm. Horsemanship is simply called clean. Cleanliness. Is that difficult? No. That is the basis of health and the basis more of safety with horsemanship is clean. Huh. Things seem to be getting bigger and there are more horses and trainers are taking on more horses. I mean, is there, is there in your opinion, is there a, a, a way out or a solution? Or people have to take care of their horses and get down to earth. Because hmm. this sport, you know, I'm not, it's not that I, I'm not bitter, I'm not over it, I'm still participating. But it got, it got too fat, happy, rich, instant gratification, and tied up that way. Everybody can see it. They all talk about it. And that is the arch enemy of, of the sport, the horse. This is about the horse. Heels down is about the horse. Clean tack is about the horse. Proper grooming is about the horse. Proper turnout, proper stable management is about the horse. Shoulder in, all of those exercises are for the benefit of the horse. There's less and less time. The horse is becoming a vehicle. And what is a vehicle for? For ego, for social recognition, for social climbing. Less and less and less people are attached to the horse. But there are lots of people out there with a sincere interest. There are lots of people with their hearts in the right place that want to do it right, that want to be with the horsemanship, that don't want to lower. Lots of people, lots mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. There are also lots of people, especially in the competitive world, that the horse is more and more a vehicle. I call a vehicle, and that's not part of the sport. And that might bring us um, uh, kind of a nice segue to um, to jumping clinic. Uh, you had been doing jumping clinic for 41 years and four months, um, and I did the math, and I think that means you've critiqued 1,984 photos for Practical Horsemen. Um, <coughs> so first of all, thank you very much. Um, we've sort of been talking about it uh, last year in 2018 and uh, we've kind of went back and forth and, and you had been talking about wanting to be part of um, having having a say in who the successor is because it was an important column for you um, and I, I just want to say to people listening um, you were amazing uh, doing jumping clinic we would send you a pile of photos that readers had sent in and no matter where you were in the country no matter where you were in the world uh, you always whenever I called you up to, to go over the column you were always there and you had your pile of paper you know photos and we would we would go over them 
Um, I guess maybe first off, why why are you so dedicated to to really helping? You know, as we know, people who sent in photos, they were just all different types of riders, beginner riders, a little more advanced. Um, why why were you so dedicated to the column? Well, first of all, I had great fun. Forty, I didn't know it was forty-one years. I thought it was about eight years. Uh, but I've had such fun with you, and we had a couple of other girls that did a good job that helped me out with that. Uh, but we go back. Why did I do it? Why was I so conscientious? Because we go back to what I first said. I've always been a horse nut, passionate, mm -hmm. and when it comes jumping horses, position teaching, writing, I'm never bored, never bored. Uh, so I hope, I mean, we did do it from Australia and South America and Europe and Russia and all over the place. Uh, but I had great fun and, and again, I was brought up with my family. Don't do something unless you do it 100%, don't do it. Mm -hmm. So I've always, uh, by nature, I'm very conscientious. I'm very much a stickler on time and dress appropriately. It's the old school. I'm not ashamed of the old school. I'm very proud of the old school. Now, we started talking a year or two ago because I'm very old now. In a few weeks, I'll be 81, which I can't believe because I still I think like I'm 23 but I'll be 81, so we started talking a year or two ago about a transition. Selfishly, for the American style, I wanted somebody that we went down the generations with the same line. And I thought of two or three people. We talked about it. Also, I preferred someone modern, somebody high profile that people can't disagree with because they're so successful in competition that they can't disagree with that person. Then she had a great influence with one of my best, not only writing students, but teachers, Katie Monaghan Goudon, also reinforced her stamp on Beezy's already, very much Gordon, Burt, that line of the American style, what I call the American style. So luckily, when you talk to Beezy, luckily, you know, Beezy's so busy, she has so many horses, so many obligations, students, but she's the kind, she's a busy person who always has time. You know, people that they don't have time, they're not busy. People that are very busy always seem to have time. Beasy luckily said yes, that she has time. So I have the utmost confidence in her following the American style line because she rides, she and two or three others exemplify the American style. Mm -hmm. And she's a brilliant teacher. She has a brilliant eye for position because the pictures are really all about horse care, tack, and position. <clears throat> you know, it's not a, if she does a video, she'll do it beautifully because that's kind of alley. Uh, and I expect she'll do things like that for you. But she was a wonderful choice. 
And all I can say, it's not that she was a wonderful choice, that she could squeeze this into her life mm -hmm. and do it. The, the country, the world is so lucky to have her take on the photos, the videos, whatever you do it. They're so lucky to have her eye because she has the eye, she has the feel. She, she you, arguably the best woman in history of show jumping. Mm -hmm. But I would have to put her, I would say second to none. You have a current winner, she just mowed down the indoor circuit and she'll mow down next year and head to the Olympics. You have a great teacher that's trained, helped train the uh, mental McClay winners. You have a great eye, a great feel, never lowers her standards, never lowers her, there won't be a hair out of place or her horse a hair out of place, much due to her and her husband, John Madden, never lower her standards. I would not, I would left you in the lurch if I would have to suggest somebody that lowered my standards, I would have said, by Sandy, I can't help you. Mm -hmm. I would not have suggested somebody if there was an iota of lowering the standards. And she won't ever do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's a, a great, a great oh. choice. And uh, she's one of those people, whenever I see a photo of her, her position, is, oh. her leg is just never... Never out of place. We're the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. We're the lucky ones that she did it. Now, you've said you're still going to be teaching clinics. And um, I guess what's, what's, what would you say in teaching your clinics around the country? What are some challenges you're seeing riders facing uh, these days? More icing, less cake. That is, they look the part, they dress the part, they have horses for the part, they horse show for the part, but in a heartbeat, because I'm experienced, I know how to see through them in a heartbeat. I know to ask a question or ask something on or to expose them. It takes me not 30 seconds, two seconds. <laughs> so I would say, what we see today is more icing than the cake. The cake is the work. The, case, the cake is the basic work. Day after day, month after month, year after year, all aspects of horsemanship. Uh, and that's more and more people are now, even, even top professionals, competitive riders. They teach people how to compete. Jack LeGroff said it 25 years ago. They teach them to compete, not to ride. And um, I guess when you're teaching the clinics, or you know, even thinking about the the riders uh, from Jumping Clinic um, who send in their photos, uh, do you have a favorite exercise um, that you use? You know, that you think is important. Well, if I had to pick something in today's politically correct fashion, which is often exaggeration of continental riding, which is too deep a seat, too far behind the movement of the horse. I would say what is neglected is what is called two points of contact. Mm 
or the rider at a standstill. Walk, trot, canter, gallop, stands slightly out of the saddle. That's often neglected. And often some trainers overdo it. Overdo it will put you ahead of your horse. Underdo it will put it behind your horse. Without two-point contact, you can't put an educated grip in a rider's legs. That is, his heels are well down, his ankles flexed, his toes out of shade, and his calf in contact with the horse. Without, that's, that's going back to the French school, without two-point contact, you can't put a leg on a rider. That's why you see lots in Europe, pivotal legs swing back and forth, and their heels are up. And that is a must, especially for fast, but not so much in dressage. In fast riding, short stirrups, galloping and jumping uphill, downhill. It is a must, eyes up, mm -hmm. upper body forward, heels down. That is a priority. And uh, just looking down my list of questions, one question I, I forgot to ask and, and um, about when you were talking about your horses, do you have a favorite horse that you, you rode? Any, any one of them stand out? Well, you're sitting in my house and you see some of my Rio, Brussels, mm -hmm. Subtly, Isle of Erin, Gamecock, St. John. I, I, had, I had so many wonderful horses. My first grade horse for this junior horse, I had Gamecock, who put me on the map. Then I would say this next horse, which also one of Bill Steinkraus's favorite thoroughbred from Harry the Hare, called Sin John. He was everybody's favorite horse. He was he was so intelligent. He was a thoroughbred off the track, weedy. I had to shorten my stirrups up very short because my toe would hit the jumps uh, so fast, so careful, never stopped in his life. Uh, Night Owl was a di totally different horse, but again, Grand Prix of Aachen winner. And I had great hunters, wonderful, wonderful hunters. I had a horse on my cover of my first book, Flying Long, a great horse who is the most beautiful horse at any show. If there's 10 horses or a thousand at Devon the day before the show or whatever, that horse stood out like he was the most beautiful horse at a show. Uh, my favorite hunter, he was a horse called Isle of Erin. was a fabulous, I loved her, loved that horse. Then I have to say when I made an unforeseen comeback to show jumping, uh, two young horses that brought me back to the sport, I had to say the two favorites of that time, my end. My end was an heir called Brussels, who was extremely hot, the hottest horse I've ever ridden. All my customers hated me riding her, they're afraid. And I had total confidence in her, I wasn't afraid, because mm. she was so intelligent and so catty. So I had Brussels and Rio, who was a total nutcase, fruitcake. He was a sweet horse, he was <laughs> the sweetest horse, but in his breeding, 
I don't think it was his breaking, I think it was in his bloodlines. He had a screwy father, and he was a screwball, but he was a sweet screwball. But he broke my femur, he broke my neck, it was my fault. He separated my shoulder. Uh, because if you look left, he'd bolt right. I mean, fast. If you tickled him mounting, he would bolt fast. If you lost your balance and a jump off, he'd twist you off. Uh, but he, I loved him. Loved him. He retired, died on my property. So, uh, you know, I've had lots of favorite horses. What did you love about what did you love about well, him? Well, he was a sweet, first of all, he was a sweet horse. He was very, very shy, but he was very sweet, very sensitive. He looked like a thoroughbred. People thought he was, he was a German horse, but he looked like a thoroughbred. He had a beautiful mouth. He went in a snaffle. I used two reins on the snaffle, and people thought it was a gadget, <clears throat> but I used two reins in case one broke. Because there'd be no chance with that horse if a rain broke, you couldn't reach up and grab the bit. That'd be it. So I had two reins and a plain snaffle. He's one of the few horses I ever competed in a plain snaffle. Most horses I competed in a twisted snaffle or a double twisted wire snaffle or a Kimberwick. He was one of the few ever that I jumped in a plain snaffle. Uh, beautiful gallop, beautiful big stride, but very adjustable. Immense scope. He won the Grand Prix at Calgary, the de Maurier. So uh, I have to put him as one of my favorite, even though I was hospital bound <laughs> with him, but he was one of my favorite. Mm -hmm. Jane Clark owned him. Is there anything? You know, looking back over your, your very illustrious career, is there any is there anything you would have done differently or, or told your younger self? Um, Sandy, I was I was born the star over me because I wasn't talented. I had the right family, I had the right location, I had the right club to ride at, I had the right teachers. I had the right horses. I was in the location, New York City, the right horse shows. I was like the outliers. <laughs> and and I, re, I emphasize, and I'm not, it's not false modesty. I was not, I was the tortoise. I was not talented. I was chicken. I was stiff. It took me forever, but in taking me for, forever because Gordon was so wise. Uh, the sun always shone on me, always. From the start of the horse business, I had luck. You know, Gordon also said, George, luck is better than knowledge. <laughs> and he was right. Luck is better than knowledge. So, so I always had luck on my side, always had luck on my side. And one final question. If there's one thing maybe that people don't know about you that you would want them to know about you, is there anything like that? I'm actually, I'm, I'm a Pisces. 
and Pisces are two fish or two people swimming in opposite directions. I am totally two people swimming in opposite directions. I'm very conservative. I'm very conscientious. I'm a workaholic. Uh, I can't, I'm very conservative. And yet, on the other hand, I'm just the opposite. Yeah, well, not, not all of me is just the opposite, but I am, I'm a free spirit. I'm a Pisces. I am a typical Pisces. Look up Pisces, very artistic, very, very interested in past, the physical, very, you know, I, I'm a doubter. I'm a doubter. I'm always a doubter. If you say you're a doubter, yes, I doubt that I can do this interview. I doubt tomorrow that I can ride well, these forces I work, that I can, I doubt. I doubt, is that the right hand position? Now I don't understand the Renate, so I go back to all these books here, read about Renates. Well, I'm saturated with my German direction, I'm now going to go in the French direction. No, I'm too much French, now I'm going to go back to German. No, I'm a doubter. I am a, I'm a worrier. I am a major worrier. Yeah, I, I don't know if people would think that, especially major. if, if uh, major. at your clinics and yep. and you're you're certainly known to intimidate. So I think that would that that would be well, surprising. That is also part of teaching. Mm -hmm. And I'm very sorry the culture is trying to erase that because you have to be a general run a writing establishment, anything, business, school, there has to be a leader, there has to be a general. Respect borders on fear. Respect is a little dose of fear. And I look, I train people, when I handle people, I look for something to establish that hierarchy. I look for something they did wrong. I ask them a question, something to establish the hierarchy, I am a leader. Because without that, you have nothing. And once they argue against me, I say, do you know how dangerous this sport is? Once they try to tweak my approach to teaching and training, my answer is because they don't know how dangerous writing is. They don't know how dangerous jumping is. And without this army, disciplined approach to it, you're increasing the danger a hundred times. So the argument's very simple. It is dangerous. Don't try to tamper with my teaching because you're tampering with safety. I would rather retire not teach right at all, then compromise my standards. What I was taught and what I did and what I produced. I'm not changing. Great. Well, thank you. You've, you've, uh, we've been talking for, for quite a while now and I really appreciate your sharing our, uh, sharing, you know, uh, all the lessons you've learned in life. And, and, um, so thank you very much. Sandy, you're the best. You're a great friend. 
I've had a great time with you. You, you know, I love you because you listen. You know, you listen. You still listen. And you listen with sincerity. It doesn't matter 41 years or how many pictures or how many times. I can always tell that I don't waste my time with you. Mm-hmm. On a personal level, you listen. And that I appreciate. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. And um, as I said before, you know, I know all of our Practical Horseman readers, uh, thank you for all of your years doing Jumping Clinic. And, um, and we'll do something again. Exactly. We'll, we'll keep it going. Something. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Practical Horseman's debut podcast. I'd really appreciate your feedback. So if you have the time, please rate and review the show. And join me again in two weeks where you'll hear my conversation with show jumping great Margie Goldstein-Ingle. After that, our show includes talks with show jumping Olympian Ann Krasinski, top hunter rider Liza Boyd, as well as top eventers Buck Davidson and Great Britain's William Fox Pitt. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening.